Well, good morning, church. Good morning. I'm glad you made it out here today in spite of uh, <laughs> the not-so-great weather. And um, my family and I are, are just coming back from a quick trip to Florida. And so this is a rude awakening to come back to this kind of weather. But God is good. It is well with our souls. And it's good to be here worshiping with all of you. And uh, if, uh, if you're new with us, if you're visiting with us, a special welcome to you. My name is Dan Min, and I serve as the pastor here at ACF. And uh, we're so glad you've chosen to worship with us and you made your way out here this morning. Uh, if, uh, if you have been journeying with us and tracking with us for some time, uh, you know that we started off this semester with a brand new series called Big Faith, Big Faith. And this is where we're talking about the kind of faith that, that changes the world. In fact, when you look at any significant Christian movement, any faith movement throughout the course of history, it was always off the heels of a community who exhibited and exercised big, audacious, crazy, and I would even say stupid faith. I mean, it's the kind of faith where you like, I, I don't even understand the kind of faith that this is, but this is the kind of faith that I believe God is calling us to, a big kind of faith. Of faith. And we've been getting some help from some Old Testament characters that have exercised and shown for us what this big faith, this big kind of faith looks like. And by the way, if you miss any of our previous messages, you can watch them on our website or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and you can be all caught up that way. But we're continuing the series today by looking at our third Old Testament character for this series. And, um, and this character is found in the famous Hall of Faith that, that we've been kind of pulling from, which is found in Hebrews chapter 11. And the Hall of Faith, as I said before, is exactly what it sounds like. It's a Hall of Fame for People who exercise big faith. These are people who exercise extraordinary, not your average kind of faith. And Hebrews 11 kind of lays out a series of Old Testament characters uh, in, in what is known as the Hall of Faith. And in fact, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there now to Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have some folks coming around and they can hook you up with the Bible here. If you don't own a personal copy of the Bible, consider this our gift to you. You can take it home with you. We don't expect it to be returned. Um, and uh, we'll also have the text up here on the screen. And if you're reading along with us in these Bibles, we're on page 1007. That's where Hebrews 11 is. At the very bottom of 1007, we're going to pick it up uh, from verse 8, but before we jump into that, uh, I, I, I do want to say that the character that we're going to be looking at here today has often been, been referred to as the father of our faith. His name is Abraham. Abraham, and for those of you who grew up in the church, grew up in church world and Sunday school, you may have heard of that name, Abraham. And again, he is the great father of our faith, and you'll see why that is here in just a few moments. Now, let me just say this. The story of Abraham is massive. When you're, when you're identified as the father of our Christian faith, there's a lot that can be said about this guy and his story, Abraham. Now, <clears throat> while we can easily dedicate an entire sermon series on just this one character, I want to look at just a sliver of his story and unpack some faith principles for us here this morning. And part of that story is found in Hebrews 11, and we're going to pick it up from verse 8 and carry it through to verse 12. Now, I'm going to have you jump over to Genesis 11 here in just a little bit, uh, but for now, I want to start off by looking at what the Hall of Faith has to say about Abraham, the great father of our faith. So hear the word of the Lord. This is what it says, Hebrews 11, verse 8. It says this, By faith, 
Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In other words, God was calling Abraham and his family to go to this promised land where the builder and the designer is God. Now, the, the writer of Hebrews shifts his focus and his attention to, to Abram's counterpart, and that's Sarah. In verse 11, it says this, By faith, Sarah, Abraham's wife, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. In verse 12, Therefore, from one man, and I love how the writer of Hebrews describes Abraham here, and him as good as dead. <laughs> in other words, the brother's old. I mean, he don't got a lot in his tank left. I mean, he's just old. That's, that's all you need to know about Abraham. And him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now, we're going to pause in the, the book of Hebrews there for just a moment. There's enough in Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 12, that we can probably unpack and talk about extensively. But, but rather than talking about what Hebrews has to say, I want to go to the main source. Why talk about the reflection when you could talk about the main event, when you can go to the actual occurrence, which is actually found in Genesis 11. So I'm going to have you turn there now. Genesis 11 refers to what, Abra uh, what Hebrews is referring to in Hebrews 11. We're going to pick it up from Genesis chapter 11 at the very end, starting from verse 29. And then we're going to bleed into chapter 12. Uh, and, and carry it through to verse 4 of Genesis chapter 12. So all the way in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 11, verse 29 is where we're going to start. And here, this is the story of Abraham. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now, I want to jump down to chapter 12, verse 1, the start of chapter 12. Chapter 12 begins with the Lord speaking to Abraham, and it says this. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Oh, let's just stop right there for the day. Now, for those of you who might be wondering, you might be asking yourself the question, wait a second, hang on, I, I thought we were talking about Abraham. Who's this Abraham character? Well, you see, the story of Abraham actually starts with Abraham as, as being named as Abram. And now, later on, we'll see that God changes his name to Abraham. Now, God's been known to do this several times in the Bible. If you know your Bible, if you know kind of characters within the Bible, you know that God does this several times in the Bible. He changes Jacob's name to what? 
Israel, right, for all you Bible scholars. He changes Jacob's name to Israel. And Sarai, here in Abraham, Abraham's story, his wife, his, her name is changed later on to Sarah. God changes Simon's name in the New Testament to Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. On Petros, Peter. Simon, you will no longer be named Simon, but your name is Peter. Saul, the, the writer half of the New Testament, his name is changed to what? Paul. Saul to Paul. Now, why does God do this? Is he not, just, is he not happy with the names that their parents gave him? Like, Gary's not going to do it. We got to change your name to Gary. You know, like, it's, it's just not. So let's, let's just change your name, Gary. No offense. We love you, Gary. Where are you, Gary? We love you. Um, nothing against the name Gary. But why does God do this? Why does God change people's names halfway through their life? Well, the reason is actually embedded in our big idea for the day. If you're taking notes down, you could jot this down as today's big idea. And that is, we are called out to be called in. We are called out to be called in. And we're going to play with this dynamic all throughout the time here during our, during our message time. We are called out to be called in. You see, the reason why we see God changing people's names in the Bible is not because he's tired of calling them by that name. But it's because he's calling them out of a former way of living and calling them into a new way of life. We are called out to be called in. Now, God might not come to you today and change your name. But he is calling you out of something in order to call you into something else. In fact, you might not even recognize that this has already been happening way before you came, even, even you came into existence. God has been in the business of calling people out in order to call them in. We see this all throughout Scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter tells us that we are called out of what? Darkness in order to be called into his marvelous light. 2 Corinthians tells us that God calls us out of our unrighteousness in order to be called into the righteousness of God. Christ. Romans 6 tells us that we are called out of death so that we might be called into a new life in Christ. Galatians talks about, all throughout Galatians, it talks about how we are called out of a life of slavery to sin and called into a life of freedom in Christ. We are called out in order to be called in. And when God calls you into something, hear me church, God will always call you out of something else. When God calls you into something, God will always call you out of something else. We are called out to be called in. And so the question for today is, the question we need to be able to answer by the end of our time here today is, what is God calling you out of and what is God calling you into? If this is something that God is constantly in the move of doing, calling us out in order to call us in, what is God calling you out of and what is God calling you into? Now, lucky for you, you don't have to go searching far and wide because Abraham's story tells us exactly where and how God calls us out and where God is calling us in. I want to look at three specific areas. <clears throat> Pardon me, my voice is still not right. I'm still struggling with this post-flu cough here, and so just work with me here. Um, last week, I was told that I sounded like Louis Armstrong preaching. I took that as a compliment. Hopefully, it wasn't a distraction, but, uh, but go with me, okay? I, I apologize again. But I want to look at three specific areas where God worked in Abraham's story, and I believe God is working these things in our lives in the same exact way. The first is this. God calls us out of the familiar in order to call us into the unknown. That is, we are called out of the familiar to be called into the unknown. 
I want you to see one of the first things that God tells Abraham to do. Abraham, God comes to Abraham and he calls Abraham out of everything he knew to be familiar. Everything he knew to be familiar in order to call him into a completely unknown journey. The very first chapter, chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 12 says this. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I want you to see nowhere in this passage or anywhere else in the Bible, in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, does God give him further instructions on the whereabouts. He doesn't give him no GPS coordinates, no landmarks to look for. Hey, look for this river down by this road and turn right here. He doesn't give him any final destination. He just says, go. Just go. And trust that I will lead you to where you're supposed to end up. Now, <clears throat> Though I am a guy, I am terrible with directions. And I know that that's supposed to be a guy thing, right? Like guys are supposed to know, like, they're supposed to be good with directions. I am terrible with directions. And so oftentimes I just get in the car and say, I'm going to let the Lord lead me where he will. Go where the Lord will lead me. No, I don't do that. I'll drive my family nuts. But this is essentially what God was telling Abram to do. Go. And trust that I'm going to lead you to where you need to end up. Now, You need to understand, folks, this is huge. This is massive. Similar to Noah's story last week, if you don't understand the context, you're not going to appreciate what Abraham did here in the story. A couple of quick things to note here, okay? Just a couple of quick things. Land in the Old Testament wasn't just about geography or topography. Land was actually about one's identity, Land was deeply rooted in one's identities. You see, a nation's identity was rooted in the land in which they occupied and possessed. The possession and the acquisition of land represented great power and national stability. And that's why all throughout the Old Testament, you see so many battles for land. You you ever notice that? You read throughout the Old Testament, you see all these battles for land and the conquering of nations by overtaking their what? Their land. Why? Because, again, one's land represented power. And so if you had land, you were somebody. You were someone important. You were someone significant. You mattered. On the other hand, if you didn't own any land, you were a nomad. You were a wanderer. You were essentially a nobody. And so your identity was deeply rooted in the land that you occupied. And the more land that you occupied, the more secure you were to, 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 to protect your identity as a nation. And so that's why, again, you see so many of these battles for land. Another source of identity in Old Testament uh, biblical history was rooted in one's family of origin. It was one family, it was in, rooted in their family of origin. And so today it, it would be like, you know, I don't know, coming to coming to Jess Brumbaugh and being like, yeah, I, I know Jess Brumbaugh, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't just say, I know Jess Brumbaugh. You would say, Jess is part of the Brumbaugh family, and that's how I know Jess, because she's, she's part of the Brumbaugh family. Or I know, I know Ryan Custer. By the way, it's, should I say Custer? Custer is actually, for those of you who know Ryan Custer, you've been calling him in the wrong name this whole time. It's actually Custer. Not that he cares. Not that this has anything to do with the sermon at all. But Ryan Custer, you would say, yeah, I know Ryan. He's part of the Custer family. He's, he's part of, you see, one's family of origin was deeply rooted in one's identity. You wouldn't just say, this is who I am. No, this is part of my family heritage. 
This is part of my family. Now, whether you like your family or not, if you were part of that Old Testament kind of era in, in antiquity, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't be able to separate. Your, uh, your family origin would be inseparable from your core identity. A person's family was significant in biblical history. That's why you see so many genealogies in the Bible. So-and-so begat so-and-so. So-and-so begat so-and-so. So-and-so begat this. So-and-so fathered so-and-so. So-and-so fathered so-and-so. So-and-so was the son of that so-and-so. So-and-so. You see all of these things, not so that the writers of the Bible can fill up the pages of Scripture, but, but one's lineage, one's family origin was deeply rooted. It told stories of their history. It told stories of their identity. It told stories of God's working in their family line. That's why one's family's lineage is so important. These genealogies spoke of who they were at their core. Identity was significantly important. And so get the picture. In Genesis chapter 12, here comes God. And he calls Abraham out of everything he knows. His land, his source of identity, his country, his kindred, his father's house, his family lineage. And he just tells him to go. Go. Now, I got to be honest. As much as I love the Lord and I love walking with him, if I were Abraham, there'd be at least a little bit of a back and forth between me and God. You know what I'm saying? Like, if God were to come to me and he told me, I want you to leave everything that is familiar to you, everything that you have built your life upon, your career, your ambitions, and all of these things, your identity, your past successes, and all of these things, I want you to leave all of that, and I want you to go to a place that you don't know about. I'm going to show you. You better believe there's going to be a bit of an argument between me and God. God, you're, you're, you're meaning to tell me that you just want me to pick up my stuff and go. You're meaning to tell me that you're going to show me where I'm supposed to end up and I'm just supposed to trust you at your word and just go. If I were expected to leave all that is familiar to me, I'd want at least a little bit more clarity and direction. Anyone with me? Right? Like, if, if, if you're like, God, I, just, I need a little bit more. I need a little bit more than just go. But I want you to see what Abraham did. In verse 4, it says, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Abram went as the Lord had told him. You see, here's the faith principle, folks. Your faith cannot grow when you know all. Your faith, it is impossible for your faith to grow when you know all. You see, part of our struggle is we want the five-year plan. God, I, I, want the, I need the five-year plan. I need a little bit more. I'm not going to ask for a 10-year plan. 20-year plan sounds like a little much, so just give me a five-year plan. You tend to freak out at the thought of not knowing what to do with your future. Anyone with me? Just give me a head nod if you're like, yeah, I've been there. I'm there right now. I'm, I'm in the midst of freaking out. I'm a senior. I don't know what I'm going to do after I graduate. There's a sense of feeling like anxiety comes over us and we're like, I don't know what my life, what my future is going to look like when you start thinking about what your future and your next steps post-graduation is going to look like. Because for most of us, for most of us, PSU has become what is comfortable. It's familiar. It might not always be easy. For, we've got a lot of engineering majors here, and I'm not looking to you know, have myself stoned here. I'm not trying to say, yeah, your life is easy. No, I understand. 
I was having a conversation with a couple of you right before service. You're like, man, damn, right, my life is hard. Schoolwork is picking up, and it's, it's been picking up, and it's overwhelming me. I don't know what I'm doing in half of my classes. You know, like, you, you, you've ever been there? You're like, and, and I'm not saying that it's easy, but at least you know what to expect and when to expect it. There's a sense of familiarity around being a student here on campus. And so the thought of leaving this place and to step into what is known as the real world or adulthood is utterly frightening for some of us, especially when we don't know what we're doing with our future, with our lives. But church, can I call you to a big faith perspective here this morning? We're talking about big faith here all throughout this series. We're not talking about small faith. We're not talking about a lack of trust in God. We're talking about a big, crazy kind of faith, a big, audacious kind of faith perspective. Big faith living, folks, I want you to hear me. Big faith living is not about figuring out all the details of your future. It's not about figuring out all the details of your life or knowing exactly what is to come. By the way, there is no possible way for you to do that. So just give up on that. You, 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 there's no way to know what your future is, has in store for you. But big faith living is not about figuring out, out, out all those details. Rather, big faith living is about trusting the one who knows what is coming. So if you and I have this intrinsic built-in inability to see the future, here's what this means. Our inability to see the future provides us with the opportunity to trust the one who does. Though we cannot see the future, though we have zero ability to see the future, we know that we serve a God who can. He is sovereign. He's in control of all things. And so our inability to see the future, once we embrace that and accept that, it enables us to trust the one who can see the future. And it enables us to put our hand in his, in his faithful hand, and go as the Lord had told us. So God told Dan to go. And Dan did as the Lord had told. By the way, do you, do you see a pattern in these faith people throughout the Old Testament? And Noah did all that God commanded him. You see, big faith people say, though I don't see what's ahead, I trust the one who's leading me. Though I don't see what's coming up ahead, I fully trust the one who is leading me. You see, big faith living isn't about knowing what's coming. It's about trusting the one who sees what is coming for you and saying, yes, God. I will trust you. And that's what it means to be called out of the familiar and to be called into the unknown. But not only are we called out of the familiar and called into the unknown, number two, we are called out of anonymity to be called into blessing. Now, this might seem like a little bit of an odd transition, but, but just hang with me here. We are called out of anonymity to be called into blessing. I want you to see what verse 2 has to say. After God tells Abraham to go, God begins to promise Abraham all these wonderful things. Things like, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. In other words, Abraham, no one might know your name today, but they soon will. No one might know your name today or no one might know about you today, but soon people are going to know about who you are. I'm going to make your name great. You might not be a great nation at the present moment, but you better believe I'm going to make you into a great nation. You see, Abraham was being called out of a life of anonymity where no one knew who he was and no one knew his name to a life of blessing where everyone was going to know who he was, to a life where everyone was going to know his name. Now, many of us hear this. And, and we say, man, I, 
I don't like this part of the passage. You know, the whole going and leaving familiar and leaving my kindred and family and all of that, that I could do without. But, but this, God making me famous, God making my name great, God make Dan great again. Yeah, I can get on board with that. I got no problems with that. Yeah, but you see, it's important that we read on, and the verse doesn't end there. Notice the passage says this, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that, so that, everyone say those two words with me together this morning, so that, so that you will be a blessing. We are called out of anonymity in order to be called into blessing, but listen now, the blessing isn't for us. The blessing has nothing to do with us. The text doesn't say, and I will make of you a great nation, I'll bless you and make your name great, so that you will be blessed, so that you will acquire many blessings, so that you might obtain the great blessings of God. God is not making Abraham great for Abraham's sake. God's making Abraham great so that he can be a great blessing to the world around him. And here's the big faith principle for you and for me today. Our faith exists for the flourishing of all creation. Our faith exists for the flourishing of all creation. Big faith is all about the flourishing of all creation. You ever wonder why God wants us to have big faith? I mean, we're talking about big faith all throughout the series. You ever wonder why God wants us to have big faith? Listen, it's not so that we can do amazing things in the name of God. It's not so that we can even see amazing moves of God in our lifetime, though I will be the first in line to say, yeah, I want to see the next great awakening come. I want to see revival here, as we sang just a few moments ago. I will be the first in line to say, I want to see a great move of God all across the campus of Penn State. Remember part one of the series where we spent some time dreaming about what, what, what a big faith kind of movement might look like? I want you to see, hold that dream loosely, okay, because big faith living isn't just about seeing God move. It's not that, though those are all good reasons, that's not the reason why God wants us to have big faith. God wants us to have big faith because he wants to see all creation flourish for his glory, period. It's not so that we can be awed by the moves of God, and you will be awed when God moves, but that's not the reason why God wants us to have big faith. He wants us to have big faith so that we can see God move in our lives that would yield our lives to be a blessing to the world around us. I, I love how I, I once heard a pastor say it this way. If one day God decided to remove your church from your community or from your neighborhood, would anyone notice you're gone? Are you making the kind of kingdom impact in the world around you in a way that if God were to one day just come and plop, pull you right out of that community or that, that, that neighborhood, would anyone notice that you've gone missing? Let me, let me contextualize this for us here today. If you cease to exist today, would someone's life cease to be blessed tomorrow? If you were gone, if you cease to exist today, would someone's life cease to be blessed tomorrow? You see, big faith living isn't just about acquiring and building up our faith so that we can say we've got big faith. Big faith living is ultimately for the flourishing of all creation, all people around us. It's to be a blessing, a source of flourishing 
for the world. Remember, we are called to be a people who reaches up and reaches out. Reaches up and reaches out. And that's what it means to be called out of anonymity and into blessing. We're not just called to be great, but we're called to be great blessings. That's big faith. That's big faith living. I want you to see that the, 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 the kind of move of being called out to be called in bleeds into this one last verse we're going to look at here today. And this is where we find that we are called out of barrenness to be called into fruitfulness. We are called out of barrenness to be called into fruitfulness. The promise of God ends with these words in verse 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you... All the families of the earth, not just some, not just the select few, but all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, God reiterates this promise later in chapter 15. We're not going to turn there now, but God tells Abraham to count the stars. He says, Abraham, hey, look up to the skies. You know, and, and, and you, gotta, you better believe there were, there were no pollution in the sky to cloud up the, the great constellations of the universe. He says, look up to the skies. Count the stars, and as many as you can humanly count, that's how your offspring shall be. As many as the stars are in the sky and as the grains of sand on the seashore, that's how much, that's how your offspring shall be. Then again, in chapter 7, God tells Abraham that he's going to be the father of many nations. In fact, that's the chapter where God changes his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, the father of a multitude. He changes his name from Abraham, Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means a father of a multitude. And God promises Abraham all of these things. You could have offspring like as numerable as the stars in the sky. And you're going to be the father of many nations so that all the families of the earth will be blessed by you. There's just one little problem. At the end of Genesis chapter 11, we read that Sarah is barren. She has no child. Again, if we had time, we would read all through tw- uh, ch- chapters 12, 13, and 14 where we see how, how Sarah begins to wrestle with her barrenness, how she handles her, her issue of barrenness. And she's at an age where she's unable to conceive. That much we know to be true. So what should be the end of the story right there, if you read on and if you look at the larger story, you find that it's just actually a bookmark in God's larger narrative. Sarah's barren. She can't have any kids. Abraham, he's as good as dead. So, you know, you know how that goes. He probably don't have a lot to, to give, you know. It's like, you know, and so what do you do with that? What do you do with that? What should have been a story of empty dreams. God promises him all these things. You know, if, if I looked at my situation and the barrenness of my life, and God comes to me and he says, you're going to be the father of many nations. God, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed by you. I'm, I'm going to be like, God, you're either a liar or you're confused. Because if you see what's going on in my life, you would see that that promise, there's no possible way that promise will come to fruition. But listen now, here's the faith principle. Big faith sees dead ends as divine detours. That's it. People with big faith sees dead ends 
as divine detours. What should be the end of the story is actually just a bookmark in God's larger story. People with big faith don't see dead ends. They simply see divine detours. Big faith people are able to see fruitfulness in the midst of barrenness. I love how the Apostle Paul puts this in Romans chapter 4. This is the last passage we're going to look at here today. You don't have to turn there. We're going to put it up here on the screen for you to look along here. But in Romans chapter 4, listen to how Paul remembers Abraham's legacy. In chapter 4, picking up from verse 18, he's speaking of Abraham here, and he says, In hope he believed against hope. In other words, God, I don't, see, I don't know if you see the barrenness of my life. There's prop. Probably no way that we're going to see the fruitfulness that you're promising me come to pass. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Here's that recurring theme. Since he was about 100 years old. Now, just as a sidebar, if you have grandparents or great-grandparents that are nearing the age of 100, don't tell them, hey, the Bible says you're as good as dead, Nana. Hey, Papa, you're as good. This is not a good way to honor the elderly, okay? But that's just how Paul is identifying Abraham since he was 100 years old and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20, I love this. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. If we can just get that, we've gotten big faith. If we can just get that one little line, that one little mini sentence, you would have gotten big faith. What big faith is all about. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Rather, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21, last one, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. God, make us a people that are fully convinced that we believe that you can do what you promised to do. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Friends, the only way you're going to see fruitfulness in the midst of the barrenness of your life is to be fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised to do. That's big faith. I want to close out with this one final story. Uh, some of you have heard me mention the story before, but when I was back in my previous ministry assignment in New York, I was uh, <clears throat> serving as an associate pastor of a church, and one day I met an individual, and uh, he came in walking through the doors and uh, started getting to know this guy, started getting to know his story. You know, he came out of nowhere. He, was, he, he, was, he lived in Connecticut at the time, and he was driving down to, to our neck of the woods in New York, and his story goes as such. He was imprisoned um, <clears throat> for 19 years in federal penitentiary, and he was imprisoned for a murder that he did not commit. He was uh, falsely accused. Uh, there, was a, there was a witness lineup, and, and he was in that lineup, and uh, one of the victims or the, the, one of the folks that were involved in that event pointed this individual out as, as the, the one who, who committed the murder. He got in jail, he got thrown into prison, and, uh, and he was in prison for, for 19 years for a crime he didn't commit. 
remember sitting down with him, and 19 years later, he was acquitted, and he got, he got released because some evidence emerged that he actually didn't commit the crime, and, and it was a big news story. It was all over the news um, uh, long ago, and uh, I remember I was at his home one day, and we are just kind of, I was doing home visits and getting to know this family a little bit, and I remember asking him, hey, man, how, how, how did you... How did you last 19 years? Some of you are 19 here, no? Do we have 19? Or you guys passed that age? 19, yeah, some of you are 19 here, right? Imagine spending 19 years in prison for a crime you didn't commit. So I said, dude, how, how did you survive that? I, I remember him saying, he, he's a big dude, and like he could, he could handle his own in prison. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that issue. I just said, like, mentally, how do you handle that? He said, Dan, I was fully convinced that, that God was going to bring me out on the other side. I was fully convinced that the truth was going to prevail. I was fully convinced that because I know that I didn't commit the crime, that God would deliver on my behalf. And I kept leaning into prayer. I kept leaning into his word. I kept leaning into his promise. I can imagine somewhere in those 19 years, he looked around at his prison cell and at, at what his life has become and I got to imagine, I got to imagine him saying, is this it? Is this it? Is this, because it feels a little barren right now. Because it feels like all I'm seeing is barrenness. I don't see the fruitfulness of God. I don't see the promises of God. I don't see the goodness of God shining through. All I see are these prison walls. There's got to be more. There's got to be more. Now, you might not be in a prison today because you're here uh, for obvious reasons. But I got to believe there are some days for you where you say to yourself, Dan, I, I believe there's got to be more. There's got to be more. I got to believe there are some seasons and moments in your life where you look around and all you see is dry land, a barren womb, empty dreams, hopeless promises, I got to believe there are moments like my friend who was in prison for those 19 years where you're looking at, out and you're seeing, you're seeing barrenness. But I want you to see, folks, all throughout Scripture, and not just in Abraham's story, people with big faith see what is supposed to be dead ends as simply divine detours. Saying, hey, I know it seems bleak right now. I know it seems dry right now. I know it seems like a failure right now, but just hang tight. Keep walking with me, and I'll see you through the other side. I don't know at what point in Abraham's life, if at any point, his faith teetered or struggled. And I think part of our human struggle is trying to walk this big faith journey out and being called out of the familiar and into the unknown, being called out of anonymity to be called into being the blessing of God on this world around us, on this campus here, being called out of barrenness and into fruitfulness. I imagine, I imagine there are going to be moments when doubt begins to creep in. But in those moments of doubt, I want to close out this service by taking communion together because communion serves as the great reminder that Jesus is the one that we celebrate and Jesus is the one who stepped out of what was familiar to step into the unknown.
He, he, he stepped out from, from the familiar of, the, of his heavenly throne and the Trinitarian community, and he stepped out of that to step into the mess of humanity. And what was that for? That was for the sole purpose of being a blessing. I want you to realize when we come to the communion table, when Jesus gave his life on the cross, he had nothing to gain from that. But he had everything to give. He had nothing to gain. What, what was he going to gain? And he, he's given his life. He's sacrificing his final breath for you and for me so that you and I can walk in this big faith, so that you and I can walk in the promises of God. And because of Christ's life in us, you and I know that we don't have to live barren lives. We can live fruitful lives for the kingdom of God.